Yeah, so he drove off and, you know, I pretty much just played it cool. He's lucky, though, because I would have gone nuts on him, right? <laughs> I did get his license plate. A lot of crazy drivers out there these days. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. All right. Okay. There she is. I put in my own grub, by the way. Grub's oh. easy. Okay, cool. Yeah, it looks looks great. So. Hey, but do you happen to have those referrals I was asking about? Remember I texted you about those? Yeah. Um, you know, I asked around, and uh, all my friends had a handyman, so. Contractor. I'm a contractor. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, by the way, if you know of a good tree trimmer, let me know, because I've uh, been meaning to cut these bad boys. I could do it. Hmm? Oh, I, I mean, don't you need like a, a certification or something? Uh, what are you gonna get a guy with like five stars on Yelp? I, yeah. Those reviews are fake, man. They're totally fake. Look, I'll come back tomorrow with some dudes, 600 bucks. It would be nice to get it done. Um, 550? <laughs> uh, my guy. Only because it's you. All right. See you tomorrow. Great. Okay, great. No. Did you fire him yet? No, he's trimming the trees. Okay, well, you have to fire him after that. He's so annoying. <laughs> I know. I know. He really is. Yes, of course. You're absolutely right. I didn't think of that. Hmm. No, I know. It's just, uh, I'm the owner, so... There's no one higher up you can speak to. It... Hello? Hello? Your husband's brilliant. Yeah, uh, no, he is. Um, the globs, mm. they don't feel too out of place in here. Mm. No, I think it's exactly what the store needed. It's a good thought. It's a very positive thought. I mean, you're both brilliant. Your life, it's like such an inspiration. Thanks, Mia. I wake up every day feeling very lucky. <laughs> you know, I got into design like right after we studied how Onukai's work in college. Mm, yeah, George's dad was very special. We miss him every day. Gomenasai. What? That means I'm sorry in Japanese, right? Cool. Thanks. <laughs> love the space. Oh, appreciate you, Mama. Let us know if you have any questions, okay? Oh, my God, Amy Lau. Could we get a photo together? Of course. Oh, I got it. I've been buying your plants online for years. I just thought I should stop by the store. Oh, I love that. I read your interview in Calabasas style, and I just want to say I really look up to you and how you live your life. Thank you. I don't know how you keep it all together. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Raines, I'm one of the pastors here. That was a brief introduction to Danny and Amy, who are the two main characters in a Netflix TV show called Beef. Uh, Danny is a struggling contractor. He's pursuing the American dream, but day after day, uh, there's an obstacle that gets in the way that makes his dreams seem more and more out of reach all the time. He's having a hard time keeping it all together. Amy uh, owns a successful Home, home furnishing store, upscale, and her dreams are kind of coming true. She's trying to make a name for herself, and uh, she has. Somebody wants to buy out her company, 
And so if this deal comes through, she's going to have enough money that she doesn't have to work anymore. And still Amy's having a hard time keeping it all together. And it all kind of comes to a head. Uh, Early on in the series, Danny is in uh, the parking lot of a big box home improvement store. He's backing out of his parking spot right as Amy is driving by, and he almost backs right into her car. Doesn't. There's not an accident. There's almost an accident. And in that moment, everything that's going on inside them just kind of erupts externally. And there is shouting, and there is yelling, and screaming, and finger pointing, and you can guess what finger. And it leads to a car chase and a road rage incident. And uh, Danny is convinced that they don't see each other. Danny's convinced that some guy that he's angry at uh, ends up being Amy. They get each other's uh, license plates numbers. And then as the series goes on, it's just ratcheting up one ridiculous move to retaliate and get revenge after another. Uh, In this moment, Danny and Amy are unable to see uh, this inability to have an honest evaluation of what's going on in their heart, it's causing their lives to unravel. They are spiritually blind. I want us to read together this verse from the end of Psalm 139. We'll put it up on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. The customer at the end of that clip says to Amy, I don't know how you're keeping it all together. Of course, the truth is she's not keeping it all together. I think one of the temptations that we have when we gather together for worship every weekend, when we step inside a church, when we sit down in in a seat in a worship center, it doesn't matter if you are brand new to church, if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, or if you've been a faithful follower of Jesus for years, This is a temptation for every single one of us. We sit down and we look around and we think everybody else knows how to keep it all together except for me. Everybody else has their life figured out. Everybody else has marriage figured out and parenting figured out. Everybody else has a career path charted out. They've got the future all figured out. They understand life. They understand faith perfectly. Everybody does except for me. Uh, In announcements, Eli mentioned that last weekend was the new member class, and one of the things we are praising God for this week, 58 new members here at Hope Ankeny, over 200 new members across all of Hope campuses. One of the things I get to teach on when we have the new member class is the mission and the vision and the core values of this church. We have five core values. Core value number four says following Jesus is a growing experience. Following Jesus is a growing experience. Can we all say that together? Following Jesus is a growing experience. Embedded in that core value is the idea none of us have life figured out. Not completely. That that doesn't happen this side of heaven. There's always a next step of growth for every single one of us. Part of what it means is every single one of us, there are things in our lives, there are obstacles, there are situations, circumstances, relationships that are making it difficult for us to keep it all together. And for followers of Jesus, for disciples, this is a part of what the discipleship process is all about. Just like you go to the doctor, hopefully, uh, once a year and you get an annual physical, what, what about your spiritual health? What kind of an examination are you doing, hopefully more frequently than once a year, 
taking a spiritual look on your inner world, your spiritual life. And this verse can help us with that kind of examination. We give God permission to do what only God can do. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Point out my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you so that more and more all the time I can walk down a path that leads to life rather than walking down a path that leads to death. Another way of, of thinking about how this works, you do a spiritual examination, it, it's acknowledgement that there are things that God knows about us that we don't necessarily know about ourselves. There are things that God sees in us that for whatever reason we cannot see in ourselves. We are unaware. We are spiritually blind. Now that's the bad news. Uh, let's talk about the good news. The good news is Jesus wants to do something about it. Jesus wants to help. It's really interesting. Jesus, it's really only three years that Jesus is on earth doing his teaching and preaching and uh, healing and miracles. Only three years and it changes the course of human history. Three years from his baptism at 30 years old till his uh, death and resurrection. At the beginning of those three years, as he's just getting started, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And a prophecy that Isaiah has, how are you going to recognize the Messiah when the Messiah comes? This is like Isaiah's mission and vision and core values for the Messiah. And Jesus picks it up and claims it, like Isaiah is talking about me when Isaiah says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Right in the middle of that, one of the core values of Jesus, this is who he is and, and what he is about, is opening the eyes of the blind. Part of the good news of Jesus, I can open eyes that are blind. In our Bible reading in John chapter 9, we see it happen in two pretty powerful ways. Jesus has the power to open the eyes of someone who is physically blind, but as we keep reading through this story, we also see Jesus has the power to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. I'll start reading John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Obviously the parents, but no, just kidding. Well, isn't that an interesting question from Jesus' disciples? If you had been walking along with Jesus in that moment, you come across someone that you know they've been blind their whole life, would this be the first question that you have for Jesus? The most important question that you would want Jesus to answer? Who sinned, this man or his parents? I don't think we would ask that question. We might have different questions for Jesus, probably not this one. Why do the disciples ask this question? I think we should dig into that a little bit. Our goal, our theme for the year at Hope is the whole Holy Bible in a year. We're trying to, we're challenging ourselves to read through the Bible cover to cover uh, together as a congregation this year. One of the things I hope you're noticing as you have been reading through the scripture, the biblical writers use the language of blessings and curses quite a bit. 
Uh, We see it showing up pretty early on. Genesis chapter 12, uh, God is calling Abraham to be one of his followers. And part of the invitation that God gives to Abraham to follow him, God says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. We get this blessings and curses stuff right away, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this this family that becomes the nation of Israel, and they spend over 400 years in bondage, slavery, in Egypt before God sends Moses as a rescuer and deliverer. But Moses, he leads them out of Egypt, but he doesn't lead them into the promised land. Joshua does that. And as Joshua is settling Abraham's family in the promised land, at one point he gathers all the people together. Look what we read, Joshua 8.34. Joshua then read to them all the blessings and curses Moses had written in the book of instruction. Interesting language, isn't it? Let's gather together and let's remind ourselves of the blessings and the curses Moses has written down for us. Part of what we see here is early on in God's relationship with God's people, theology, what they believed about God was all sort of centered in this idea of blessings and curses. When things are going well for us, that's an indicator that we are being obedient and God is blessing us. And when things in our life are not going well, when it's not going the way that we want it to go, when there's hardship and obstacles and suffering, the theology of the day says this is a clue that God is cursing us for our disobedience. This is the idea of blessings and curses, and we see it all over the place in in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers use this language quite a bit. Over the course, generation after generation, and century after century, as people are kind of living with this primary belief about who God is and how God relates to us, things start to get out of whack. So uh, as we're reading through the whole Holy Bible, we've got daily Bible readings and weekly Bible readings. And when we gather on the weekends, we talk about what we were reading in the last week. Uh, We're in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, this week, we're in the book of 1 Kings. And the first half of 1 Kings tells the story of King Solomon. King Solomon is known for a couple of things. He's known for wisdom. Uh, When he becomes the king, God, sort of like the genie in Aladdin, says, uh, Solomon, ask me for anything and I will grant your request. He doesn't give him three wishes, just one. And Solomon asks for wisdom. So God gives Solomon wisdom. Solomon, one of the things he's known for is his wisdom. The other thing that Solomon is known for biblically is this idea of Solomon's splendor. Uh, The biblical writers use this phrase in, in various spots, Jesus uses this phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching about worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Look at the lilies of the field, Jesus says. They're not worrying about anything. And not even Solomon in all his splendor is dressed as beautifully as the lilies of the field, Jesus says. Solomon's splendor. Interesting word, isn't it? When's the last time you used splendor? in a sentence. It shows up in 1 Kings chapter 10. In the middle of that chapter, uh, I've got a subtitle, a subheading. It says Solomon's wealth and splendor. It begins in verse 14. Each year Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. 25 tons of gold, that's a lot. And paragraph after paragraph, as you keep reading through it, 
here's what Solomon does with the gold, here's other ways that he gets gold and silver, and it's like paragraphs talking about this accumulation of a, a massive pile of wealth for Solomon. By the time you get down to verse 26, Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 1,200 horses. And as you are reading through this, uh, the writer of 1 Kings is saying, this is like good stuff. As you read through it, it seems like the writer is saying, this is good stuff. Verse 23, King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. And again, if we're in the context, this theology of blessings and curses, we read through this, and the conclusion we come to is, really this is a description of how God is blessing Solomon for his wise decisions. Solomon's splendor, it's all about God blessing Solomon for his wise decisions. And you keep on reading, uh, you turn to uh, chapter 11, and you read this blessing that God gives to Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth. Uh, you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> like, hopefully we're pumping the brakes a little bit here, right? Uh, is this God blessing Solomon for his wise decisions? It, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel, in, in my spirit, something about this says, this, isn't, this is wrong. In fact, the writer of 1 Kings makes it clear, this is a result of Solomon disobeying, not doing what the Lord has instructed him to do. It's interesting to me. When we read about the 700 wives, our, our instinct is to say, eh, I don't think that's good. When we read about the accumulation of gold, when we read about the accumulation of horses and chariots, there's not much inside us that's going, eh, I'm not sure that's good. But biblically, we're told this isn't good. That none of it, Solomon's wealth and splendor, Solomon's uh, harem, his concubines, his wives, all of it is disobedience to what God has asked Solomon to do. Where in the Bible does it say this? Everyone's favorite chapter, Deuteronomy 17. All right, you haven't read Deuteronomy. So this is Moses, Deuteronomy, before his death, reminding the people God's doing all this. God's going to get you to the promised land, and it's going to be great. Eventually, a time is going to come after you've settled in the promised land where you look around and you're like, hey, all the other nations around us have a king. Why don't we have a king? We want a king so we can be like everybody else. And God says, okay, when that time comes, I'll let you have a king. That's what we're reading about in 1 Kings. But here are the guidelines. Here are the instructions for the king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. I'll start reading in verse 16. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. <laughs> the king must not take many wives for himself. <laughs> and the king must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Say it with me. <laughs> Three strikes and Solomon is out. Uh, don't we have to ask ourselves... Why, why is this something God does not want the kings to do? Why, why is this something God does not want Solomon to do? Because I think we understand it when it comes to the wives. That doesn't, but what, what's the other stuff about? Well, what would someone do with horses and chariots in Solomon's day? In the Old Testament world, what would a king use horses and chariots for? It's the army. It's the defense. And Solomon is building a big army. 
What about all this gold that, that he's accumulating? What's Solomon using that for? All sorts of things. But part of what he uses it for is making weapons, swords and shields. Part of what he uses it for is to buy more horses and more chariots to build an even bigger army. And think about the details of the wives. It's not just 700 wives that Solomon marries. It's 700 wives of royal birth. He's marrying the daughters of the kings of the nations around him. He's creating alliances. Solomon is, this is all focused on Solomon's kingdom and protecting his little kingdom and maybe even enlarging it so his little kingdom gets a little bit bigger. And slowly over the course of Solomon's life, what happens is he starts to put more faith and more trust in the power of the world than he's putting in the power of God. How does Solomon get to the throne anyway? God does it. And yet over time, Solomon's trusting his own power or worldly power to keep him on the throne, to protect his kingdom rather than trusting the power of God. Listen, it's not just Old Testament kings who have this kind of temptation. It's not just modern-day uh, politicians. It's not just the uber-wealthy who have this temptation to protect their kingdom and to trust the power of the world more than the power of God. Can you think of any ways in your own life that you're trusting something other than the power of God to protect your kingdom, to defend your kingdom, to grow your kingdom? And God says to us, I'm searching your heart. I'm testing your thoughts on this. There are things that God sees about us that we don't necessarily see about ourselves. Danny and Amy in this show, um, they, they are in similar but definitely unique ways, they are pursuing the power of the world. And it's not getting them the life they want, it's not getting them the relationships they want, it's not getting them the bank account they want, and they're really angry and upset and frustrated about this. But instead of like going to God and, and wrestling with what's going on inside, what's my life really all about, they put all their focus on exacting revenge on one another. They get each other's license plates. Amy starts posting horrible Yelp reviews on Danny's business page. Uh, Danny goes to her house, messes with her house. She goes to his truck, his business truck, and writes uh, derogatory words and phrases, paints it on his truck. He is so upset, and they just keep ratcheting it up, up in the ante of revenge uh, day after day. He decides he's going to light her car on fire. And so it's a, oh, I should mention, it's a dark comedy. It is not family-friendly in any way. It's probably not even a good date night show. But if you are interested in, like, human psychology and what is going on inside us and why do people do the kinds of things that they do, and if you're interested in not just thinking about why they are doing it, but also thinking, why am I doing some of the things that I am doing? I think it's a fascinating show. So Danny decides to go burn Amy's car, and the way they, the, the clip plays out that you're going to watch, it happens while Amy and her husband <laughs> are in their counselor's office having some marriage therapy. Take a look. It's hard to admit, but I think that growing up with my parents taught me to repress all my feelings. Amy, it's very self-aware. Thank you. You know, when we're stressed, 
we revert to the pathways we created as children. Oh, yeah, I mean, it all comes down to parents, and I'm excited to dig into that. But acknowledging this is just the first step. In order to create new neural pathways, we have to uncover what lies underneath our awareness. I think maybe subconsciously that's why I leave most of Junie's caretaking in George's hands. Maybe part of me is afraid that I'll create in Junie the same, uh, what was it you called it? Neural pathways that my parents did in me. But I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to live in fear. I know it's going to take a lot of work, but I really think this is the start of a new chapter for our family. What am I doing? I'm really glad we did this. Me too. It turns out there's always collateral damage when you're living in spiritual blindness. Danny's about ready to light his enemy's car on fire, and then suddenly he sees her daughter is sitting in it. Amy is in this counseling session, and she thinks she's had this huge breakthrough because, oh, it's my family of origin causing me to repress my emotions. But the wise counselor says, yeah, I'm glad you're aware of that, and there's a lot more going on that you're not seeing. You're not seeing clearly. You've, you've got plenty of other blind spots. The, the people of Israel have a lot of blind spots when it comes to this language, this idea of blessings and curses, and, and it, it leads to a messed up relationship with God. It, it leads to a proverb that gets used, a saying that gets used, uh, it's popular in the nation of Israel during the times of the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, here's what Ezekiel writes, chapter 18, verse 2. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. It's a proverb that's getting at the idea of generational curses. The idea that God punishes children for the sins of the parents. Mom and dad do something, and the children suffer the consequences. As you're reading through the Bible, you can find verses that seem to support this idea of generational curses, that this is who God is, that God punishes children for the sins of the parents. But if you read through the whole Holy Bible, cover to cover, you will see, and especially you see it in, as you read through Ezekiel chapter 18, God's like, no, 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 you... you you are not seeing the idea, the point that we're talking about when we talk about blessing and curses. Yes, there are dysfunctional and unhealthy family systems. And when we, there is collateral damage when we are living in spiritual blindness and we do things and we say things that end up impacting the next generation and maybe even two or three generations down the road. But that is not God cursing children and grandchildren for the sins of the parents. That's just the natural consequences of living in spiritual blindness. And so God says, let's, let's stop talking about this idea of generational curses. And theologians call this chapter, uh, God shifting us to this idea of individual reward and retribution. Verse 20, God says, the child will not be punished for the parent's sins. The parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Instead, each of us as individuals in our working relationship with God, have the opportunity at various points in our life. If I am a part of a system that is unhealthy and dysfunctional, will I, with God's help, make a decision to stop that and to create a new healthy system? And this is a big part of the way God 
opens our eyes and helps us grow spiritually is figuring out where those places are and what does a, a new kind of life look like. Uh, part of what is fascinating to me about this TV show, the way they filmed that, it, it made it really easy for us to see our incredible capacity as human beings for self-deception, for, for living out of blindness. Danny has convinced himself in his spiritual blindness, it is a good thing, it is a righteous move by me to burn the car of my enemy. And Amy, as she's like, oh yes, I'm, I'm glad for this breakthrough. I, I'm so, I want to be a different parent to my child than my parents were to me. But in the way they film it, can't you tell she's just faking it? She's just playing. She's saying what she thinks her counselor wants to hear. She's saying what she thinks her husband wants to hear. But she's not really in it. She's just playing a game. Following Jesus is a growing experience, is our core value. And every once in a while, we have to ask ourselves, is our heart really in it? Or are we just playing the game? Are we playing the church game? Are we playing the Christian game? Are we showing up because we think it's what we're supposed to do? It's what our spouse wants us to do. It's what our parents want us to do. But our heart's not really in it. As you keep reading through what God is up to in Ezekiel chapter 18, it becomes really clear what God is interested in is the condition of our heart. And so at the end of it, God says, put all your rebellion behind you, find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. This is what happens as we are growing in our faith. God changes our heart. God puts a new spirit in us. It's a complete transformation. It often doesn't happen in the moment. It often happens slowly over the course of our lives. We, we never fully arrive. But God wants to give us this new heart and this new spirit. And when we get a new heart and a new spirit, it opens our eyes. We get a new perspective. We start to see things that we had not seen before. And when we get this new perspective, when we're looking at the world from this new perspective and this new vision that God has given us, it starts to redefine things for us. It can start to redefine what the Bible is talking about when the Bible talks about a blessing or a curse. Think about Jesus. One of the first things he does, he teaches the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes, Jesus redefining what a blessed life is all about. You're blessed when you're poor, when you're poor in spirit, when you understand how desperately you need God. You're blessed when you're humble. You're blessed when you're mourning. You're blessed when you're a peacemaker. You're, you're blessed when people mock you and insult you and persecute you because of your faith in Jesus. He redefines blessings in the Sermon on the Mount. And in our Bible reading in John chapter 9, Jesus is redefining curses. Jesus who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. We know he's blind because God is cursing him for someone's sin. We just don't know if it's his own sin or if it's his parents' sin. And Jesus is like, nope, that's not how this works. That's not how this has ever worked. Jesus says, this happened so the power of God can be seen in him. Remember what gets Solomon in trouble? He starts putting more faith, more trust in the power of the world than he's putting in the power of God. What Jesus is up to in John chapter 9 is reminding us imploring us, put your faith, put your trust in the right power, the right source of power. Put your faith and trust in the power of God. 
So Jesus spits in the dirt, makes some mud, rubs it over the blind man's eyes, sends him to the pool of Siloam where he washes his eyes, and when he opens them, he can see. And there should be great celebration, but instead there is confusion and criticism and questions. The people who knew this man, who grew up in this community with him, they're like, did he have a twin brother we didn't know about? Is this his doppelganger we're seeing? He looks like the blind guy, but he can't be the blind guy because he's not blind anymore. And the religious leaders, they're critical because the religious leaders are very much focused on maintaining their power. They have the power over the religious world. They have the power to speak to the people on behalf of God. And Jesus is breaking their rules. They maintain their power by strictly enforcing the rules. And Jesus and now this blind man on the Sabbath day, they've broken the rules around how to keep the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders are critical. There's always collateral damage when you're living in spiritual blindness. Part of the collateral damage we see in John chapter 9 is the blind man's parents. They don't get to rejoice in this miracle because they fear the religious leaders are going to kick them out of the synagogue, kick them out of their religious community if they say the wrong thing in this moment. So when the uh, religious leaders have questions for the parents, they're like, talk to him. And the poor guy they, they just bombard him with question after question after question. Finally, he's like, listen, I, I don't exactly know how this happened. I've got plenty of questions myself. But let me tell you what I do know. I was blind and now I can see. I was blind and now I can see. That's what I know. I've come to open the eyes of those who are blind, Jesus says. And the starting place, whether it's physical blindness or spiritual blindness, is acknowledging we cannot see. I was blind. He acknowledges that. I am blind. I have blind spots. We have to acknowledge that in order for Jesus to heal us, to open our eyes, to help us see. Of course, the tricky part about this is they're called blind spots for a reason. We can't see them. So it's difficult to confess or to acknowledge something that we cannot see. Jesus is going to help us see what we cannot see. There's a guy named Oliver Sacks was a uh, neurologist in the last century, probably most well known for his book called Awakenings. They turned it into a movie in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams were in that movie Awakenings. He uh, wrote several other books, including one called An Anthropologist on Mars, and in that book, he tells the story of a man named Virgil. Uh, when Virgil was born, he could see, but at some point in his childhood, he lost his eyesight. He became blind. And then when Virgil was 50 years old, he got a medical procedure, and he was able to see again. And after he comes out of living in blindness, after his eyes are open and he can see, it actually didn't feel good to him initially. He could see colors. He could see shapes and movement, but he couldn't put it all together in a way that made sense to him. And so uh, because it was confusing, and he preferred, even after his sight was restored, he preferred living as a blind man over living as a seeing man. Oliver Sacks writes this in the book, one must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It's the interim, the limbo that's so terrible. I've come to open up the eyes of the blind, Jesus says. But he also says at the end of uh, John chapter 9, because the religious leaders are so upset and confused over what's happened, Jesus says, I've also come 
to show those who think they can see that they are really blind. Following Jesus is a growing experience, and just like there are growing pains when we're growing physically, there can be growing pains when we're growing spiritually. And when Jesus opens our eyes and helps us see things about the way we've been living our lives, when when Jesus is pointing out the things in our life, our behavior, our relationship that are offensive to him, it can feel terrible in the moment. But if we trust the work of God, the healing work, the saving work of God in our life, we know that this is a good thing. It's growing pains. It gets us back to where we started. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Danny and Amy are in this ridiculous game of revenge. And I don't know if you heard it. At the end of that last clip we watched, as Danny realized this car I'm about to set on fire has a little girl sitting in the back of it, he runs away and he's asking himself, he's kind of yelling at himself, what's wrong with me? What am I doing? It turns out Danny, the family that he grew up in, they went to church on a regular basis when he was a boy. And then when he got old enough, he stopped going to church. He started pursuing worldly power and wealth and splendor, and he lost his faith in God. So when he's running away from this car that he was about to light on fire, it's almost like it was a spiritual awakening for him. It was almost like the, uh, some uh, scales in his eyes fell off, and he saw something in that moment that, for whatever reason, he had been unable to see. What's wrong with me? What am I doing? He knows there's something going on inside that needs to change. He knows he needs a rebirth. He knows he needs resurrection. So what does he do? He goes to church for the first time in years. As he steps into the church, he gets a text from uh, his enemy, Amy. She's wanting to call a ceasefire and, and have a truce. He doesn't even read the text. He just steps into the worship center. And as you watch this scene, I want you to watch for the ways in which God is at work, searching Danny's heart, pointing out the things in Danny's life that are offensive to God, ultimately so he can give Danny a new heart and a new spirit. Take a look. We thank you for Jesus. Lord Father God, we come to you. We come to you today just as we are. That you can take us in our brokenness and our need. And that you meet us here today, Lord. We ask for your spirit to come and fill this place. That we might worship you joyfully with all of our hearts. Jesus is calling me. Come on, church. 
stand with me, please? I got to tell you, I was not expecting that scene when I was watching that show. But as Danny was worshiping there, it, the scene did something inside me. I hope it did something inside you. We all get to these times in our lives, these places in our lives where we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. And hopefully for some of us, we've had an experience like that where we turn to God and God met us in that place of brokenness, that place where we've just kind of destroyed everything. And God started this work of rebuilding us and giving us a new spirit and a new heart and opening our eyes. So we're going to sing one more song. And I hope you noticed Danny didn't really sing until the very end there. You can, but he was worshiping the whole time. So I hope that you would worship. I hope you would use this uh, time to allow God to do some examining of your heart and figure out what kind of heart surgery does God need to do in you today.